Aloha. I'm Dr. Kathleen Kozak. Welcome to The Body Show. Each week we talk about health and fitness, but none of what we discuss replaces a visit to your own primary care provider. Ever wonder what sort of research is being done right here in the islands? Well, today we are going to get a taste of some of the great research projects that have been going on through Hawaii Pacific Health's 2018 Summer Student Research Program. We have scholars here this evening that are all planning on hopefully being our future doctors here in the islands, and we're going to hear about some of the great work that they've been doing with some of their physician collaborators and get a little taste as to what the results are in their projects, which they're going to hopefully give us an early hint and let us know how things are going. Now, first, we're going to be talking to Victoria Mack. Victoria, tell me, where are you in school, and what's your connection here to the islands? So I graduated from Punahou School, and I'm going to be a senior at St. Louis University. Fantastic. That sounds exciting. What's your major? I am an investigative and medical sciences major. Oh, okay. I don't know what that is. What, what kind of things are you studying with that? Um, so our courses are more laboratory-based, but we only do the lecture side. So some of my major courses are like urinalysis, hematology, um, hemostasis. Interesting. So you take classes to learn about all those different sorts of laboratory analyses. And so essentially you could like run a lab. Well, we don't do the lab part. So I know all like the... How they do the how testing. How they do it. Mm-hmm. Well, that's more than I know, I'll tell you. Now, you're doing an interesting project this summer, Hospitalization and Emergency Department Utilization Trends for those individuals with gout. Now, who are you working with, and what exactly are you studying? So I'm working with Dr. Sianyik Lim, who is a a rheumatologist, and um, we're looking at gout trends compared to rheumatoid arthritis. So right now, we're looking at three hospitals in Hawaii. We're looking at Polymomi, Straub, and Wilcox. And we're comparing how um, through the years like 2011 to 2017, the number of outpatient and emergency department admissions that have been made. And right now, um, so far, data shows that there have been a lot more gout ER visits compared to the rheumatoid arthritis. So we are thinking of seeing how that could be decreased over time. So you're comparing these two chronic conditions, Mm -hmm. one of which can cause pretty significant flares. I mean, the way I hear people who have had gout describe it, it's like sudden onset. They didn't hurt themselves. They don't know what happened. They wake up and one of their joints is like super red and Mm -hmm. swollen and tender. And they're like, what's this? And so those folks, from what you're gathering, they go to the emergency room more than maybe a chronic rheumatoid arthritis patient might. Yes. And so we're looking at trying to figure out how to manage their gout so they don't have episodes so bad they go to the ER. True. So what are you finding out? What should we do? Um, So our study is more of like an initial study to show that there are a lot of ER visits. Um, And then our recommendations would be like to do a future study on how to decrease those amounts. Well, I'll tell you one thing. Don't eat the foods that give you gout. Mm Mm-hmm. That's like a basic, but you would be surprised how many folks are still eating the foods that give them gout because they just can't resist. And some of those foods include things like shellfish and, you know, red meat and and beer and alcohol. And there's a whole list. But surprisingly, there are some things on there that that I think people don't realize. And I think like 
cauliflower is on there and mushrooms and, and things like spinach. I mean, there are a lot of foods that actually can cause this exacerbation, but so can trauma. You know, hey, if you go on a super long run or a lot of exercise or you injure yourself. So if we could figure out how to treat gout better before it flares, we could potentially help to decrease the utilization of the emergency room because maybe primary care providers like myself could mm-hmm. kind of help people so they don't get gout. Yes. All right. And are you seeing a significant difference in the number of individuals with gout going to the ER versus rheumatoid arthritis? It's so like three to one, five to one? Um, currently in our research process, we are doing the statistical analysis right now. But um, at the presentation, I'll be able to give you more on that. So it's probably, I would think, you know, in my clinical experience, I think it's at least three to one. I mean, most of the people with rheumatoid arthritis have chronic conditions. Their joints hurt a lot. They don't tend to have the same exacerbations as gout. And maybe they also, maybe rheumatologists just do a fabulous job keeping them well controlled with Mm -hmm. a plan of action if they have discomfort with their joints. So, all right. Well, do you want to be a future rheumatologist? It's one of the fields I'm looking at, but I'm still keeping an open mind. That's the best thing to do. Keep that open mind because you never know what you're going to find out if you do go into medicine and you decide, hey, I want to choose a certain field. It often is something you totally don't expect. You don't, you don't even realize that that's what you want to do until you get in that field and you get excited and you do it. All right. Well, great information, and thank you. I look forward to hearing more about what these ER utilization trends are, and most importantly, trying to do my part to keep people from being in the emergency room with gout, see what I can do to help out. All right. The next research student that we have, uh, Jamie Cotto, you're talking about something really interesting, the 80-20 rule, which to me meant 20% of the time the answer is C, but I guess maybe that's not the 80-20 rule you're looking at. Who are you working with and what sort of, how, how did you, how are you here in Hawaii? Do you have connections and family here? Um, yes, I went to Iolani School for high school and I'm going to UH Manoa right now and I'm going to be a junior. Fantastic. And your major? Um, my major is biology. Great. What's your favorite aspect of biology? What do you love the most? Mm, I, so far, there's nothing that's really like, I mean, I like all of it right now. So I think once I do, well, next semester, I'm going to be doing developmental biology. So I'm really looking forward to that. And I think that might be one of the ones that piques my interest. Excellent. Okay. So you're working with one of my colleagues. Dr. Jared Liveday. Okay. Yeah. And what is the 80-20 rule in your world? So we're looking at um, high utilizers of healthcare resources. So we're looking, we're dividing them by high cost and then high utilization. So people who go to the ED, who are going through inpatient stay a lot or going to office visits very often. And so we're breaking them up by facility at HPH. So we're doing um, Kapilani, Wilcox, Straub, and... Um, polymomy and we're just kind of collecting a lot of variables on them so maybe like medications um, how many times did they go to the ed um, what maybe might be their social economic status and things like that and we're going to try and like um, determine what variables might be leading to their utilization so is the 80 20 rule that 20 percent of people use 80 percent of the resources um it's actually we're looking at um 
So we're looking at the top 10 at each facility. So it's going to be 80 total. Ah, oh, yeah. so that's your 80-20 rule. Yeah. I'm just making up these rules because, <laughs> you know, the answer is not C most of the time, by the way. Don't put that down on exams. But okay, so you're really looking at these particular facilities and trying to figure out what are the conditions that result in frequent emergency room mm-hmm. utilization? Mm-hmm. Because I think, you know, one of the things that people don't realize is that emergency rooms cost significant amounts of money and your insurance often covers for the visit. But if we think about insurance as something that everybody pays premiums into a big pool and if all the money gets taken out of that pool, there's not enough left, that that's why we want to make sure we find appropriate locations for care. So, you know, we have actually in the last couple of years here in the islands, people may recognize There's minute clinics, there are walk-in clinics, there's urgent cares. They seem to be popping up in a lot of places. And I think for a lot of folks, that's actually more convenient for them. I mean, you can go after hours, you can, if you happen to go to one in a pharmacy, then there's the pharmacy, and then there's stuff to look at when you walk around. I always find it ironic, they ask me, did you find everything you want? And I look at what I bought, and I'm like, I don't need any of this, but I found it. So lots of interesting utilization of urgent access and urgent cares, with the idea that there might be a more appropriate, still convenient way to help take care of your healthcare needs. I think one of the bigger issues is how can we maximize the ability and flexibility of people's offices like my own so that if you call me and you're sick today and you say, I we need to be seen today, we find a way to get you in instead of saying, well, we'll go to the ER. You know, So that's sometimes what happens is there's no appointments, so that's your only option. So have you ever been to an urgent care? I have been to an urgent care, yes. Okay. What was your thought? Were you the patient or were you just visiting? I was the patient. Okay. You don't have to tell us why. There's all that confidentiality stuff. <laughs> but did you feel like overall it went well? I mean, what, did you choose it because it was convenient? It was open at an hour you needed and they took care of what your concern was? Oh, yeah, definitely. Because um, it was after my primary care provider like offices closed and mm-hmm. I had needed to go right away. So I went there and I got the care I needed and it was fine. Yeah. Fantastic. All right. That's what we want to hear is people get what they need when they need it. And that can help to reduce overall healthcare costs by decreasing utilization in emergency rooms. So fantastic. That sounds like a real interesting project. I'd be curious to hear about what those diagnoses are and what we can do to try and help with treating those conditions so people don't get bad enough. They need to go to emergency rooms. All right. I'm Dr. Kathleen Kozak. You're listening to The Body Show. When we come back, we're going to talk about some more healthcare projects that are going on out there and new ways that we can hopefully help to really help all of us stay healthy, but continue to provide excellent care right here in our own local community. We'll be right back. Support for The Body Show comes from the HPR Local Talk Show Fund, which helps Hawaii Public Radio sustain and grow its locally produced talk shows. Mahalo to contributors Chaminade University, Inter-Island Solar Supply, and Hastings and Pleadwell, a communication company. Welcome back to The Body Show. I'm Dr. Kathleen Kozak, and today we're hearing from Hawaii Pacific Health Summer Student Research Program. These are the scholars that are here in the islands, often people who might have graduated from school here or have connections here, and they're doing these fantastic projects looking at a variety of different aspects of healthcare right here at home. So we just heard about some ways that we're looking at things to help provide care outside of the emergency room when appropriate, because maybe that 
that might cost everybody less and hopefully lower our overall cost of health care. Now we're going to be talking about some other interesting direct health care types of projects. Jordan Fernandez, tell me about where you went to school and what you're studying and what you're doing. Um, so I went to Kapolei High School, and then I went away to college to Washington State University, and I recently graduated with my degree in chemistry. Wow, that's something. I kind of remember organic chemistry, getting a bunch of pens and trying to <laughs> rotate them in my hand. And I was really just not good at that whole spatial thing. Mm-hmm. Chemistry is a pretty important area, and it actually has a lot of implications in what we do every day. Mm-hmm. So what was your favorite part? Do you have a particular type of chemistry you liked the most? Oh, yeah. My favorite chemistry is inorganic chemistry. So that's working with metals on top of um, the organic um, chemistry stuff. Interesting. Okay. Well, I can't say I know much about it. I'll be honest. I'm glad you got that degree because I would be useless in that field. (laughs) Tell me a little bit about who you're working with and what you're studying. Uh, So I'm working with Dr. Prashant Purohit, Dr. Len Tanaka, and Dr. Andrew Fong. And we're evaluating the safety and efficacy between two different um, drugs that help patients um, pee in the pediatric intensive care unit. And so you're looking at two different particular medications, and they're helping kids who have trouble with urination? Mm-hmm. Yes, that's correct. So these medications could help them. Are we dealing with kids who have kidney problems or kids who are just happen to be in the hospital and that's not the reason why they're there, but they develop a kidney problem while they're there? Um, it's actually both situations. Okay. And what are the medications you're looking at? I'm looking at Lasix and Bumix. So two pretty common medications. A lot of folks might have heard of Lasix or furosemide. And so this is a medicine that helps promote the kidneys to get rid of extra fluid in the body. Bumix Mm -hmm. is another one. Mm -hmm. I've kind of always maybe inappropriately thought Lasix is not as strong as Bumix. Maybe I'm wrong on that. Mm -hmm. Um, That is the general understanding. Is it a misunderstanding or am I correct? (laughs) I don't know. Yeah, um, that's what I'm trying to look at to see if Bumix is a better alternative to Lasix um, because it is thought that Bumix is uh, more potent than Lasix. Well, that's kind of what I always thought, but it's not because I've given people both simultaneously and tested them. Now, when you're looking at doing a trial with two different medications, what are some of the things that you have to be careful with? Do you know which medicine someone is taking when you look at the analysis and the data? Um, Yes. So when I look at um, the data, um, I try to make sure that the patient is on, um, or I try to evaluate when the patient is on the treatment and um, look at Um, if they're on one of the medications or if they're on multiple different ones. So you really have to do a lot of analysis, and there's a lot of moving parts in this. Mm -hmm. And so it sounds like just like with chemistry, it's sort of you like the metal on top of the organic. I mean, this is a way that we're sort of taking a look at two different medications and having to consider all the different variables. What time is it given? How long does it last in the body? Is it given intravenous or given orally as a pill? Mm -hmm. I guess for kids, mostly it would be intravenous. Mm -hmm. And then how long of an effect does it expect to have? Mm -hmm. So I heard this thing that Lasix is called that because it lasts for six hours. Mm -hmm. That'll be an interesting thing to uh, confirm or deny. Mm -hmm. I hope it's confirmed (laughs) because... I have some pretty good uh, evidence that that's, that's the truth. All right. And so when you complete this project, you'll be able to really take a look at and see which one of these medicines were more effective for this pediatric population with certain conditions that require the use of diuretics in the hospital. Yes, that's correct. 
All right, looking forward to hearing about what the results are. I think Bumex is a little bit stronger than Lasix in general, but certainly something that only kids are given if they absolutely need it. So thanks for looking into that because I am always happy and willing to learn more about what are some of those things that, boy... I went to med school a long time ago. Got to update. All right. Well, next we have Marcus Yamamoto. Marcus, where are you from and what are you studying? Hi. Um, I'm from Waipahu, Hawaii. I went to Pro City High School. And I'm currently going to be a junior at Creighton University. In Nebraska. Yeah. All right. That sounds like a great place to be, particularly when it's not the winter. Yep. It's not too bad when, not when it's not winter time. There you go. Okay. I've heard how fun and cold it gets there. Okay. And what are you studying? So I'm studying invalid baseline testing and sandbagging in high school athletes. Okay, sandbagging, you got to give me a little explanation. All right, of course. So basically sandbagging is when um, a student might try to intentionally attain a lower score on their preseason baseline test. So this is for concussion testing. So say that the student gets injured and they have to retest. This is called a post-injury test. So if the score from their post-injury is close to their baseline, then it shows like they might not have any... um, cognitive or mental impairments. So you can clear them and say that, oh, this person probably does not have a concussion. But if their post-injury score is lower, then, yeah, it looks like they might have some something wrong. So with my study, we're looking to see how prevalent students may be trying to fake their baseline test to try to affect um, post-injury return-to-play decisions. So essentially, if you're, if you're super smart... And you always ace your exam. But then suddenly, you know you're going to have to do this test Yeah. as a baseline that'll be used for comparison later. If you kind of don't do so good on purpose, then if you're out there playing a sport, whatever it might be, you get a concussion and you kind of bang your head and then you don't do so good on the exam. It'll look like you're still super smart yeah. if you do the same as your beginning score, but maybe that wasn't as good as you could. Mm-hmm. Yes. Have you ever sandbagged a test? No, I usually try pretty hard. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I don't know. I don't think I would intentionally do poorly. I mean, maybe I would just do poorly because I don't know it, like chemistry. But all right, <laughs> so this is kind of one of those things where you're going to figure out how often and how prevalent it is. Do you think, I mean, you went to high school, you know friends, right? Did you hear this stuff really happens? Are kids really doing this? Um, I've never heard it in my high school, but I'm sure it does. Based on, like, our results, like, yeah, we do have kids that are doing it. Yeah. And generally, I guess I guess they would be athletic kids because they're playing the sports. Yeah. All of our, our um, um, participants in this study are all high school athletes. And are they all doing football or there's a variety no, of it's sports? No, a, it's a variety of sports, like every single sport that you can think of. All right. Well, that's why I know nothing about it <laughs> is because I was certainly not a school athlete. I, I think I was a I was a mathlete, and that's that's when kids get together after school to do math problems for fun, and uh, that's a great group. But I think athleticism has something to be said for it, and it's probably something to strive for. All right, well, that's going to be interesting to find out how prevalent it is. Thanks for studying that, and we'll get some more information on that soon. But it is something we've talked about concussions before quite a bit, and it is something to be very concerned about because having frequent concussions can lead to difficulties with future school performance and also with a variety of other things. Depending on how many you have, we're now looking at chronic changes in the brain as a result. So 
things that we need to study. So I'm happy that we're starting now with some of the high school students. I'm sure we'll do more studying about this as time goes on. I'm Dr. Kathleen Kozak. You're listening to The Body Show. When we come back, we're going to talk about some more new exciting research being done right here in the islands and what we might learn from it. Stay with us. Support for The Body Show comes from the HPR Local Talk Show Fund, which helps Hawaii Public Radio sustain and grow its locally produced talk show programming. Mahalo to contributors Bush Consulting, Sacred Hearts Academy, and Urgent Care Hawaii. Welcome back to The Body Show. I'm Dr. Kathleen Kozak, and today we're hearing from the Hawaii Pacific Health Summer Student Research Program. There are 13 fantastic students. We're going to have six on for the show this week. We're going to hear about the other seven projects next week. And what we're talking about is some of the research that they're doing right now that is based on conditions and medical medical situations that are happening right here in the islands. So now our next guest, Lauren Ow. I'm very curious. When I was younger, I used to think I was allergic to penicillin. Turns out it was my brother. Oops. But uh, you're going to, you're doing a project looking at confirmation of penicillin allergies. Tell me about where you're from, what you're studying, and let's talk about your project. Hello. I'm from here, and I went to Punahou School, and I'm currently going to be a senior at Scripps College. In La Jolla? In Claremont. Claremont. I know nothing. It's in California. Mm-hmm. Yeah. It's okay, like I got in- as far as California. <laughs> okay. Scripps Medical Center, I think, might be down in La Jolla. Yeah, it's named after the same woman. Okay, so I wasn't that far off, <laughs> but wasn't really in the right place. Okay, so what are you studying there? In Scripps, um, biology. Biology, again, do you have a favorite part? Um, I like physiology and learning about how the body functions. All right. Well, then medicine is a good thing for you. It's all about physiology. Tell me a little bit about your project, and is it cost-effective with confirming penicillin allergy? I'll tell you how I figured out it was my brother. He got penicillin, got a rash. But that's probably not the most effective way to do it. So tell me about your project, who you're working with, and what you're doing. So I'm working with Dr. Lauren Yamamoto, and we're looking at the total cost of people who do have or are labeled as penicillin allergic and comparing that to a group of people who aren't labeled as penicillin allergic. And we're taking their antibiotic prescription orders and calculating the total prices. And hopefully the hopefully what we hope to find is that the people who are penicillin allergic have more expensive antibiotic orders. So you're anticipating that would probably be the case. And if that were the case, would it then be ideal to actually do some kind of testing to see if people might be actually truly allergic or maybe it was their brother? Yeah. So actually about 19 out of 20 people who are labeled as penicillin allergic aren't truly allergic. And people might get like diarrhea or like an upset stomach, but they're not, they don't actually have an immune reaction to the penicillin. And once they're labeled as penicillin allergic, this label follows them throughout their lifetime, and they can't use any of the drugs in the penicillin class. So this limits the amount of antibiotics they can use, and the options are reduced to antibiotics that could be more expensive or have more side effects. 
Well, and that's a really important thing for people to know is that allergies are different than intolerance. And unfortunately, in the medical record, it's sometimes put in the same place. But if you can remember what your reaction is to a medicine, make sure that you write it down somewhere because I'll even see things for aspirin. Somebody says they're allergic to aspirin. I saw it in a chart today and yet they're taking baby aspirin. And I said, well, how are you allergic if you're taking it every day? And they said, oh, well, in high doses, I get stomach discomfort. So you're absolutely right. I think sometimes people mix up a true immune system allergy with just having an intolerance. And looking at this project, it sounds like we're finding out that we really need to be careful with how we label people. 19 out of 20, you said, didn't actually have the true allergy. Yes. That's there. There you go. I never I thought I was actually I thought I was allergic and I was one of your (laughs) not really allergic. And then, well, I didn't I didn't warn my brother. I probably should have. But okay, so that's a really interesting idea. And I think it will probably find out that based on either cost effectiveness or even just generally wanting to open up the spectrum to different antibiotics, that we figure out that it's really important for us to be really clear, not only as patients with our history, but also for people who might report that they're allergic to something and how that affects the other medicines that they use. So that's pretty darn important for us to know. All right. We have one more project we're going to talk about this week. And Kelly, you're going to tell us a little bit about what happens after, let's see, short-term rehab. Tell me about you, where you're at, and what you're studying. Hi. So I graduated from Iolani School, and I'm going to be a junior at Claremont McKenna College studying biophysics. Okay. Now, is Claremont McKenna in Claremont? Yes. So okay. I got it this time. <laughs> Claremont McKenna and Scripps are both in Claremont. Yes. Okay. And you are also biology, you said? Biophysics. Biophysics. Okay. Oh, physics. Oh, that's a down thing for me. (laughs) So what is biophysics and why do I not like the word physics? (laughs) So biophysics is a very interdisciplinary major. I take courses in biology and also courses in physics and math and then a lot of courses that are in the intersection of these two fields. Um, I like it because there's a lot of medical applications to a biophysics study, such as, like, for example, we study fluid dynamics, and in biology, we study the um, how blood flows through your body. So we can apply that blood flow through, to fluid dynamics and understand a deeper level of how the blood flows. Wow. <laughs> I mean, already I feel deficient, because <laughs> physics was not one of my strong points. I mean, I like it, sort of, But, you know, that whole thing about forces you can't see and don't even talk to me about quantum, Mm -hmm. whatever it is, I just beyond beyond my brain capacity. So that's a real interesting combination of looking biology and physics Mm -hmm. and, again, knowing about how how blood flows, but looking at fluid dynamics and really making that analogy. It sounds fascinating. Mm -hmm. Makes me want to be young and go back to school again, don't (laughs) I wish. All right. So tell me what you're studying and who you're working with. So I'm studying factors associated with the change in disposition after short-term rehabilitation. So I'm working with a geriatrician, Dr. Albert Yozawa, and APRN, uh, Dr. Jessica Nishikawa, and they are both at Straub. So the patients that we are looking at, they are patients who are hospitalized at Straub and then ended up, go- up going to Halenani Rehabilitation Center for short-term rehabilitation. And we're comparing where they came from, so whether what their living situation was like before they got into the hospital, and then looking at where they end up being discharged to after short-term rehabilitation at Halenani. So these are people who potentially could go back home. 
Yes. And they're in a particular facility for getting their strength back, maybe doing some physical therapy, occupational therapy, and getting back to hopefully a baseline where they can function independently. Yes. And do some of them never have a chance to go back home? Do they have to stay longer in the facility? Yes. So um, ideally, we want the patient to go back to the original living situation and become independent, like you were saying. But unfortunately, there are some patients who have to either go to a long-term care facility or Halenani has intermediate care, which is their version of a long-term care. So patients might be discharged to a nursing home or hospice or even um, some care homes. And the patient population we're looking at is 65 years or older. So they are Hawaii's elderly population. Wow. I know one day when I'm 65, I'm going to be upset that the word elderly was just used. (laughs) But I understand, yes, I still do consider anyone over 65 senior citizen and elderly. (laughs) So, you know, we have a lot of people here in the islands who unfortunately are not able to manage themselves independently. And we don't catch it in medical situations until they've broken a hip or they've had a pneumonia or they have some sort of debilitating illness that requires that they actually get treated further in the hospital. And subsequently, you know, the more you're in the hospital, if you don't get out of bed and you don't walk around and sometimes they put you on bed rest, you lose that capacity. You know, that old phrase, if you don't use it, you lose it really is true. And not just for me in physics, but for everything. (laughs) So certainly something we need to take a close watch at. I want to thank all of you for sharing your projects with us. I look forward to hearing more about the projects and what comes out of this. We'll all have a chance to hear more about the research. Uh, If you'd like to hear this show again, you can click on our podcast, hawaiipublicradio.org, or you can find it on the HPR app. I'm Dr. Kathleen Kozak. Our engineer is David Chong. And we will be back next week with more excellent, exciting projects that are happening right here in Hawaii. See you then. 